0: Your first instinct when, uh, when you hear those words in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 might be like, I've got some questions about what's happening in this passage. Uh, most of us do. Uh, I certainly have my own, and they have to do with questions like, how do these words, how does this account of creation square with the reality we live in? How does it explain things like the origin of life and the beginning of the world and what it means to be human? Those are all Really good questions and worth tracking down. They're just not the ones we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, I will mention to you that, that we're going to pick back up in Genesis in the new year. We're going to spend a couple months walking through uh, Genesis 1 and 2 as a way of understanding better how how this origin story given to us by God explains so much of what it means to be a human being and every facet. So we'll come back and do a deeper dive later. Um, so I don't want you to set those questions aside completely about uh, what this passage teaches us about what it means to, to live in this world as a human being. Don't set those aside, except for maybe today you can set those aside for a few minutes. Uh, because the question I want us to wrestle with this morning instead is how well Genesis explains us. Like, how does Genesis explain your, your felt experience as a human being? With all of the beauty and all the brokenness of life? And I would argue that, that Genesis gives us an explanation you will not find anywhere else. No philosophy, no other religious text, no beautiful piece of music or wonderful work of art This is the only place where we have an adequate explanation for what it means to to really live in the world with our eyes open, to be aware of all of the odd things going on inside of us, how odd we are, how strange we are as human beings, how often we are walking contradictions. And it really comes down to this idea that that is introduced to us right away in Genesis, and that is that we are made to live with God, that God with us has this extraordinary explanatory power when it comes to life in this world, real life in this world. So, what I want to talk about this morning are three things, how in a way, how God with with us makes sense of our lives in three different ways. First of all, we learn in this text that God with us is what we are made for. It's what we're made for. We also learn in this text that God with us is what we hide from. And then thirdly, that God with us is what Jesus was born for. It's what we're made for. It's what we're hiding from. It's what Jesus was born for. Uh, First of all, this passage tells us that God with us is what we are made for. Now, before we get to most of what I want to say about that, we should camp out for a second on the second half of that loaded statement. It's what we were made. It's what we are made for. Because right there we have this assertion that that, that confronts so much of our attitude about life day in and day out, that you are made. You're not a self-made man or woman. You're not an accidentally made person. Uh, you have been created. Uh, and we see it right here in this passage in many different places, but I've chosen for us one place, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, if you are a made creature, a Created creature, that means that that you are one who lives under authority, that even though we act like we call the shots, we don't really call the shots. Even though sometimes we act like we are the final authority in what goes on in our lives, we're not really the final authority. And that alone has huge implications for your life, like huge implications, which again, we'll talk about more in about a month if if you're still here. Uh, And if I'm still here, I'm planning on still being here, but God willing, we'll talk about it in a month. Um, But it's also significant that in the very next verse after we're told that we are made, that we live under authority, the very next thing we see is that God blessed. The one who stands in authority over us is also the one who blesses us. And one of the ways he blesses us is by desiring our company, by pursuing our presence. And here I want to fast forward a little bit to uh, chapter 3, verse 8, because uh, in many ways this is the image I want us to work with for for the rest of our time together, the one we find in verse 8 of chapter 3, and they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's such an extraordinary statement Uh, in the cool of the day, translated, it could just be uh, in the evening. That's not really the extraordinary part. The extraordinary part is the suggestion here is that this is something that happened every single day. Like this is the routine. Some of you have routines. Maybe you have a family walk or a, a, a walk with friends every so often. Maybe you have a morning run with friends. It's just what you do. You get up and you do it or a morning swim where you get out, you just make sure it happens. And here we have this the, the suggestion, anyway, from the context and from the language that every evening the Lord God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. I can't quite, quite sort out the, the logistics or metaphysics of that, so I'm not really going to try. What that says to me, though, and I hope what it says to you is that this is what you are made for. to walk with God in the cool of the day, to, to feel the thrill of being known and pursued. I wonder if, if we could just take a second to, to think about this, to contemplate what if What if behind every desire of your heart and every longing of your soul, like everything you you want to be true about your life, what if all of that could be traced back to this shared moment of human history that is buried deep within the recesses of all of our memories? That there was a time when human beings walked with God in the cool of the day. <laughs> like, what if, what if that just began to explain why it is that even the things that we want the most seem somehow elusive and out of our reach? Like, what if it begins to explain why it is that, that the longings of our hearts cannot be satisfied within the walls of this world? because you were made for more than this world. You were made for the one who made you and to walk with him and, and just let that, let that image begin to recalibrate and reorient what it means to relate to God, to be known and loved and pursued. And yet, it's this, this existence of God with us that is not only what we're made for, it's also what we are hiding from. And if that sounds like a contradiction, it absolutely is. Because Christianity would tell us that every human being is a walking contradiction. Like, the thing that we need the most and long for the most is the very thing that we're fleeing from as fast as we can. The novelist Walker Percy put it like this, why is it, fellow human, That of all the billions and billions of strange objects in the cosmos, novas, quasars, pulsars, black black holes, you are beyond doubt the strangest. Indeed. I think we have a reason for that, an explanation for that, actually. Because we feel that. We feel that inside of us. Uh, The explanation we're given is that we are hiding The most tragic and ludicrous thing we find in the Bible is that Adam and Eve hide from the God who knows all and sees all. And yet there it is. In the moment they are found out, in the moment they realize that they have not just failed God's expectations of what it means to be righteous, they've failed their own. They are so overwhelmed with shame and self-hatred and guilt. The very first thing they do, verse 7, is they sew together fig leaves to make a covering for themselves. They start to cover themselves. They hide once, and if that's not enough, when they hear God coming for their daily walk, they hide again. They're double hiding in a thicket of trees. And isn't it true that our first instinct, like for all of us, when we are full of shame and overwhelmed with guilt and even hating ourselves, is to hide, to withdraw. Have you ever played hide and seek with a toddler? Maybe this morning, some of you were playing hide and seek with a toddler just to get to church. It's like, come out, come out, wherever you are. Um, Toddlers, generally speaking, are terrible at hide and seek. Like, they're terrible. You know, all you have to do to, to coax them out of their hiding spot is to say, hey, Bluey's on, you know, and then they come running out. Or you get some fruit snacks and, you know, wrinkle the, the package a little bit, and they start coming out from behind the curtain. Sometimes you just have to listen because they're so loud when they're hiding, like in the closet and banging on stuff and whispering and talking to their stuffed animal that's in there. Like, they kind of forget what they were doing. Um, or, if, or if you're just observant, sometimes you see an appendage, like, sticking out from underneath the couch. You're like, uh, are you there, Right? Unfortunately, as adults, we are much better at hiding. Like we, we've learned by now how to hide really well behind well-presented images of ourselves. And people say, how are you doing? I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm good. We, we hide by isolating ourselves. We hide within our phones. We hide in the thicket of trees known as Netflix. Right? We escape, we step back, we take some personal time. We don't let anybody know what's really going on behind the wall of shame, and it makes sense that we would actually think this way because, you know, we can't stand ourselves, and so we just assume no one else would stand us if they really knew who we were and what we were about. That's why there is a a shame-fueled assumption about this passage. Like, the way we think it would go, you know, if the way we think it should go in some ways in our minds because we know ourselves. You know, we can imagine God showing up in the garden and Adam and Eve are, you know, hiding in plain sight and he walks up to them and he says, uh, I can see you. You know, third tree to the left, like you're right there. I, I see you and not only do I see you now, but I saw what you did and I, I heard the lies you believed about me, which were lies that Satan told you that I've been holding out on you, that I'm really a Scrooge, you know, I'm really stingy, I don't want you to have the best, and so I just make arbitrary rules because I want to keep you down. Like, I heard all of that, and I saw the way that you did. Like, I gave you one command, and I saw the way that you turned down everything I gave you just to break the one command. I saw that. You can't hide from me. And I came all the way down here just to let you know that I'm done with you. You had your chance. You blew your chance. Like That's the scenario we replay over and over again, even now, even those who love Jesus and believe that we're loved by God, that that scenario of shame just plays over in our heads. Like we just imagine that's the way God must approach us even now, even for those who are in Christ. And yet here, even here, we see a very different story playing out. God does show up. God does see them because he is the all-knowing, all-seeing God, third tree from the left. I saw what you did. I heard what you believed. And yet rather than shaming them, and driving them further into hiding. What does God do? He asks a question. Where are you? Okay, for the record, God knows where they are. Just, you know, let's not get any funny business going on here. He knows exactly where they are. The problem is they don't really know where they are. And you see, by asking a question, God is actually issuing an invitation to reconsider their choices and to recognize what's really going on. They are hiding from the God who knows all and sees all, and they are deep in their own shame, and they need to recognize in this moment that, yes, they have forfeited their rights to dwell in the presence of a holy and glorious and righteous God. They have blown it. And there are consequences for that. They don't deserve life in God's presence, they deserve death. And yet it is out of that recognition that God not only asks this question, but he makes a promise. He promises that there is one who is coming who will restore what's been lost. You see, the God we were made to dwell with, the God we are hiding from even now in our shame, is the God who has come for us in Jesus to restore what we have lost. Because God with us is what Jesus was born for. That's what it says in Matthew chapter one, but that's what it says right here in Genesis chapter three. You'll notice that After giving the man and the woman a chance to begin to recognize the significance of what has just happened, God then goes into promise mode, into declaration mode. And the first declaration he makes is to the serpent, to Satan, the father of lies. And he says to him in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your heel head and you shall bruise his heel. Obviously, this is somewhat cryptic. We, don't, we aren't given all the information and yet based on what we know about Jesus, we can even tell from this initial gospel promise that this is, this promise is talking about someone and about someone finishing the fight that Satan started. I will put enmity between the offspring of the woman. What do we find out? Well, we find out that this one is one who will be born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those living under the tyranny of the law. And this one who is coming will bruise or crush the head of Satan. He will destroy evil and death and sin forever. And yet he will do so in such a way that he himself is wounded. Theologians often call this the first gospel, the first declaration that God will make right in the the very place where we have gone wrong. On the cross, Jesus is broken and Satan is crushed. On the cross, Jesus obeys as the second Adam we sang about a moment ago where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Or as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you who were once hiding in a thicket of trees of shame and guilt and death and despair, you have been brought near in the blood of Jesus, for he himself has reconciled us to God through the cross. This is not a Christmas movie, but it is a good movie. 1999, The Straight Story. Uh, it's a true story, based on a true story, about two brothers, Alvin, not the chipmunks, uh, Alvin and Lyle, straight. So uh, when the movie opens, these two brothers are, about, are in their 70s. And uh, there's been some rift in the family. There's been some offense. And so these two brothers haven't spoken to each other for a decade. And they live about 250 miles apart. So Alvin finds out that his brother Lyle has cancer. And he decides he's going to put their differences aside and he's going to go visit his brother who has cancer. The problem is that Alvin's eyesight is so bad they took away his driver's license. And all he has uh, by way of transport is a 1966 John Deere tractor. And so he decides to hitch you know, kind of a trailer with all of his belongings that he'll need for the six-week journey from uh, this town in Iowa to this town in Wisconsin to go see his brother, uh, and he starts making his way. So most of the movie, I know this sounds compelling, but most of the movie chronicles his journey uh, on the back roads of Iowa and the Midwest to get to his brother. It takes six weeks uh, on his 1966 John Deere tractor. The final scene of the movie, uh, i sorry, I'm going to give it away, but uh, it's still worth watching. Uh, Alvin pulls up in, in the driveway of uh, his brother Lyle's house, and he calls out to his brother. He says, Lyle, doesn't hear anything, Lyle, and you can see on his face, he begins to worry that, that he's too late, that reconciliation's never going to happen. And then Lyle says, Alvin, comes out in the porch. And Alvin, who himself isn't in great health, has two canes. He sort of makes his way up to the porch, and there's a moment where they're standing looking at each other, and you can see just even in their eyes, like, they're still kind of, like, not real happy with each other. And Lyle's trying to figure out the angle that Alvin must have to come all this way. And so he says, why don't you sit down? They both sit down, and they're just kind of looking at each other, sizing each other up. And that's when Lyle kind of lets his eyes drift to the left, and he notices the tractor, with the trailer in the driveway. And you watch as his face begins to change from a settled anger and bitterness to sadness to wonder. And he looks at his brother and he says, did you ride on that thing all the way here? just to see me? And Alvin says, yes, Lyle, I did. Fade to black. One of the things I love about this movie and about that scene is that it reminds us that you need the whole movie in order to get the last scene. I mean, if all you had was the last scene, you'd kind of be going like, okay, okay. But when you understand the lengths that this brother would go through to reconcile with his brother, to take that first step of, I'm going to make this right, that last scene becomes poignant and beautiful and a moment of grace. The reason that we need to go all the way back to the beginning and for the next few weeks begin to listen to the slow and steady pursuit of God for his people, to be with us, not just to be for us, as important as that is, but to be with us, is so that when we get to that moment when God appears on the scene, when he writes himself into the story in the manger, we remember this is a long time coming and that God is fulfilling a promise to make right what we have broken, and to be with us. Not just then, not just today, but forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you for um, your faithfulness to your promise. Lord God, it is... um, honestly hard for us to understand why you would so much want to be with us. And yet, Lord, we pray that in this Advent season you would give us space to meditate, to consider, to contemplate, to savor this wonderful gospel truth of not just God for us, as glorious as that is, but that even in the pinnacle Even in the pinnacle of your redemption story is this promise that you will be our God and dwell with us forever. Stir our hearts, Lord, to greater love and affection and obedience toward you, all because of the grace you have shown us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.